0: Georgia gets ready for the 2024 spotlight.
1: We will fight for our democracy, for our founding principles as a nation. And Georgia, when we fight, we win.
0: Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Belustein.
1: And I'm Patricia Murphy, and we are two of your political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If you're just joining us for the first time, welcome, and be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. We are so
0: thrilled to be here live and in person for our first live episode here at the AJC Studios in beautiful Brookhaven. Patricia, it's awesome to be here. We have so many questions from our listeners we can't wait to get to.
1: It's true. Greg, I get to see you IRL in real life quite a bit. Not too much, just quite a bit, just enough. But I don't get to see Shani B very often, and people cannot see him on our screens. But Shani B is just on the other side of the camera. So the whole gang is here. We're in real life. We have a ton of questions, but we'll kick it off a little bit with some 2024 talk because it's never too soon
0: and i have to point out to our video watchers our viewers the cool backdrop we have it looks like we're at a picnic at the state capitol with the
1: twilight i've got my my picnic basket over here my chardonnay it's just great i'm not sure this would be my first choice for a picnic at twilight but that's okay it's a monument it's important it's politics so there's nothing wrong with that
0: it is georgia politics Well, coming up in today's episode, we're going to open it up with talk about the latest in 2024 politics in Georgia, and then we're going to start getting to your questions because, as I said, we have literally dozens of them. We won't get to them all, but we hope to get to a a decent amount of them before we have to sign off for the day. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Let's start right here, Patricia, because a few years ago, many Republicans, definitely not all, but many, they were in denial that Georgia was going to be a premier battleground state. We heard some scoff at the notion that Georgia was going to be competitive. Others like Governor Kemp and Attorney General Chris Carr were sounding the alarms. Well, now that is not in doubt at all. Leading Republicans say the race is effectively over. The race for the White House is basically over if the GOP cannot carry Georgia, and Democrats are already putting the state at the center of their efforts. You look no further than Friday's visit from Vice President Kamala Harris.
1: Georgia, let's all understand what's at play. These extremists have a plan to take their agenda national through the courts and blocking access to the ballot box. These so-called leaders have a national plan to silence the voices of the people and to roll back our progress. But here's the thing. The people will not be silenced.
0: Clearly, Patricia, a big part of the Democratic strategy is painting Republicans as extremists, as Trumpers, as MAGA.
1: Yeah. And that's something that we see Joe Biden do over and over again. And it's so interesting to hear Harris say that because she included in her remarks, talk about um, abortion restrictions and talk about gun restrictions, which here in the state of Georgia, those poll very clearly in the favor of policies that Democrats are supporting right now. Those are no lose issues for Republicans when it comes to a GOP primary. But when you get into a general election, when you get into a statewide contest. Like Joe Biden won narrowly in 2020. That is the place where Democrats really believe they can continue to pick off those suburban Atlanta voters, voters, even in parts of rural Georgia. It's a pretty clear. Advantage That Democrats would have if they really focus on those issues. And um, of course, the race in Georgia is not over, but Republicans um, know very well they cannot lose this state. There's a path for Democrats to get back to the White House without Georgia. It's a narrow path and includes Wisconsin and Michigan. Republicans really can't win without Georgia, and so that's why we are seeing early visits from the national ticket, and we will not be ignored. I don't want to sound crazy. We will not be ignored, <laughs> but we, Georgia is not going to be ignored even by GOP candidates while they're campaigning in places like Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina. We'll still see them here in Georgia because they cannot lose this state. um, And they want to push back on that conversation about being extremists, but they also have to win their GOP primary in the meantime. And somebody like Governor Brian Kemp is the model that they're going to be following.
0: Yeah. Before we talk more about Kemp, Democrats, as you mentioned, there's still you know, they're, they're pretty bummed right now in, in, in general, because at least Georgia Democrats, because of some setbacks. Uh, President Biden picked Chicago over Atlanta, of course, for next year's Democratic National Convention, which Democrats here saw as a way to energize and keep D- Georgia Democrats mobilized. And of course, Secretary of State Brad Raffensberger did not go along with Joe Biden's plan to make Georgia one of the earliest voting states, instead picking March 12th as next year's presidential primary day, it still could be in the thick of the battle for the nomination or, you know, the nomination could be effectively over by then. Um, but either way, both those big, you know, shiny baubles that Democrats here in Georgia wanted uh, are now out the door. That's why Kamala Harris's visit a couple days ago um, was some something of an incentive, you know, for for Georgia Democrats who, could not win those other two events that they they had long sought. Um, so Democrats are still energized, but um, and Georgia is still going to be this premier battleground state, but it's not going to play the role that some Democrats hoped it would play next year.
1: That's exactly right. So Georgia Democrats didn't get those two prizes, and I think they really believed, I think they really believed they were going to at least get one of the two, if not the early primary date, which really, Brad Raffensperger had control over that decision. Then perhaps at least the convention. Neither one of those happened. But the much bigger problem that Democrats have is Joe Biden's approval rating here in Georgia, which has hovered between 36 and 40 percent since he was sworn in. And that is a much bigger problem than just where Democrats choose to have their convention. Chicago, Atlanta. It's a great TV affair. It's a great way to reward Georgia Democrats. Um, but they got to get reelected, and he's had these really. Um, middling, stubborn approval ratings. Um, Even while the economy in Georgia has been quite strong, he's just been dragged down by a number of other larger issues. So that's the real work they have to do. And they have to just pound home with voters. Um, It's not as bad as you think they're saying to Democrats and independents. Um, They want to make these changes on gun legislation. They want to make these changes on abortion legislation. And by the way, here's all this federal money that is flowing into Georgia, basically like a fire hose to build bridges, to build roads. That's the kind of federal spending that voters will consistently say they want to see. Even while these budget battles are happening, Democrats are saying, here's the money that you want coming in. And now let's talk about tax increases for billionaires. Um, That conversation is a little harder to have about any kind of tax increases. But Democrats have a lot of work to do between now and next November um, to really feel comfortable in this state. Yeah, Patricia, there's no
0: sign of a wide scale open revolt among Democrats, Mm -mm. President Biden. The bigger concern, of course, is apathy, because those poll numbers in Georgia nationally continue to lag behind where Joe Biden wants to be. But I keep going back Back to something, I did an informal poll of dozens of, of Democratic officials and activists about Joe Biden. And I keep going back to something that DeKalb chief executive Michael Thurman told me. He said Trump is the most single, the single, most unifying factor for Democrats right now. And Biden, in Thurman's words, is quote Trump kryptonite. So Democrats are still banking on the, the Trump factor here. Well, we'll see whether he's going to be the nominee or a lot. There there is a long way to go. But Democrats are still baking on that unifying force that Donald Trump offers them to energize the base and bring over some of those moderates, independents, and even some disaffected Republicans.
1: Yes. So Joe Biden is not even Democrats' ideal candidate. Um, They're concerned about his age. They know that that's a concern for voters as well. But at the same time, the reason you don't see anybody coming forward and mounting a real challenge to Joe Biden there are two reasons. First of all, they're very pleased with the work that he's done in the White House. He has passed the Inflation Reduction Act. He has passed all of this infrastructure spending that Democrats have wanted for years and years. He has passed gun restrictions, or at least through executive orders, some gun changes to gun safety regulations. So they're very pleased with what he's he's been able to give them to take home to their districts. And the other reason is that only one man in America— one person in America has ever beaten Donald Trump in a uh, an election, and it's Joe Biden. Do you really want to give up on that, who is at least no, has done it in the past? He's at least been the recipe to kind of break that Trump fever dream. Um, do you want to pick another horse? That feels like a much bigger risk for Democrats than choosing somebody who is maybe younger and a little faster, um, but not a guaranteed winner.
0: And before we start taking some questions, let's talk about the other major factor in Georgia politics, Governor Brian Kemp. Yep. Because coming off his re-election win, Governor Kemp is enjoying high poll numbers, a burst of national attention after beating not just Stacey Abrams but also Donald Trump's hand-picked candidate in last year's primary. He's also espousing a vision of the Republican Party that goes beyond Donald Trump. Let's be clear, we're not seeing any concrete steps That Brian Kemp is taking to run for president, but he's also keeping his name in the mix. He's also keeping his options on the table. As One of his friends told me, if you're not in that conversation, you're not in other conversations about VP, about cabinet, about a future run for president. So Governor Kemp clearly wants to stay in that mix. Patricia, what do you make of all this?
1: So... I'm so glad you asked because I have written my column for Wednesday and um, the headline is President Brian Kemp, it's time to start chopping because um, his campaign slogan in 22 and 18 was keep chopping. He says it all the time. I didn't really know what that meant until I asked somebody, but it's just about doing that consistent work of just keep chopping, keep working, do the small things to get a big job done. He always said it during those campaigns he does not have an ax in his hand when it comes to Iowa and New Hampshire. <laughs> he has no staff. He has no volunteers. Truly, it is the media. I hate to admit it. The media and other camp boosters who are creating this. And But he's saying, hey, I don't know. You know, he's not closed the door. And that is unusual for somebody who's definitely not running for president. You know, there is some strange alignment of the planets that could lead to a potential Kemp run. That would look like Donald Trump's the only person still in the race. Everybody else has dropped out or their numbers have tanked. Somebody has a turnkey operation he could inherit. Um, but building a presidential operation is creating um, 50 simultaneous statewide operations in Iowa. You should be looking at kind of a grand total at the end of maybe 50 staff, 500 volunteers. He has none of that. Um, Ron DeSantis has staff. Donald Trump has staff out there. Nikki Haley's been going to um, Iowa since February as a presidential candidate. Vivek Ramshwani has been out there um, quite a bit. They were all there this past weekend. So um, Kim's not doing those things. So it's very late in the game to really consider him as a viable presidential candidate for 24. Now for VP, all you have to do is pick up the phone and... That seems a much more likely possibility. Senate 26, highly likely. Um, President 28, you know, all of these other things. To your point, to be a part of one of those conversations, you should be a part of all of those conversations.
0: Now I have this image of Governor Kemp with a with an axe, <laughs> Paul Bunyan-esque, out
1: in Iowa somewhere trying That's to. That's always my impression of Kemp. Pick up
0: votes, but no, you're exactly right, Patricia. And again, we haven't seen any steps from Governor Kemp to hire those staff to build those infrastructure in states like not even in South Carolina, which is right next door. Um, but at the same time, uh, some of some of his supporters and some national Republicans see him as this sort of break the emergency glass just in case candidate, if other Republicans end up faltering, there's a long way to go. So we'll continue watching that. Shani B., I think we, do we have our first, are you reading the questions or am I? Oh, I can make myself
2: useful. (laughs) It is totally up to you. I am uh, game for whatever. I even have my glasses on, which
0: I'm embarrassed to have on camera. I can, I can read the first question because it's a really good one. All right. Let's do it. We have Let's a question from, well, we had literally dozens. So these are all great questions. But I like this one from Larry Wood. And I'm putting Patricia on the spot because she hasn't seen any of these.
1: I've but. seen none of these questions. Let's see how I do on the pop quiz.
0: What one event in Georgia politics totally shocked you?
1: Oh my God. I know, really? It's good, isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> how about election night 2020? Can I just go with that? It just kept, it was just like a bottomless box of toys that you just kept unwrapping and be like, oh my God, oh my God, what? Oh my God. And you just, you were not done unwrapping your gift until January. And then frankly, it just keeps uh, unwrapping itself. And I'm not saying that these were all good results. I'm not making an editorial comment on that, but it, it has just been the most shocking development of my lifetime as a Georgia native to see contests in Georgia um, competitive between the two parties, between the sensation that anybody could win these statewide races from any party. That is not Georgia politics for the last, I don't know, 200 years. So to see these really competitive races, um, to see candidates able to mount these campaigns and be really legitimate Based on their ideas, they have to start crossing party lines and making independent appeals to voters. Just that entire development and then all of the results that that has spun off and to me it all started in um on November election night 2020 perhaps the subject of your book flipped <laughs> flipped by Greg Blustin. For that book one
0: Republican <laughs> operative told me that Democrats had to pitch a perfect game within a perfect game within a perfect game to even be competitive in those 2020 and 2021 elections. Patricia mine isn't like this sort of singular jaw-dropping moment but it's been this long-standing process, the resilience of Brad Raffensperger, yes. someone who we all thought, even even probably even some of his, his key supporters thought was sort of doa that he was that he had no chance um, after the twenty twenty election after he was vilified by not just Donald Trump but so many other Republican rank and file activists and Republican leaders and and folks who aren't even in the MAGA camp as ineffective. Um, and not only does he beat back a Donald Trump-backed challenger in Jody Heiss in the primary But he also beats a very strong Democratic candidate in the November general election being win um, And uh, c- could have aspirations for 2026 and beyond ahead of him. So that would be my answer We are going to take a very short break. This is politically Georgia for the Atlanta Journal Constitution
2: Hip-hop is a product of black people It's a product of black song
0: And we're back to Politically Georgia for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy. We're not only two of the hosts of the show, but we're also two of the authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You can join our community right now, this very moment, by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast. And you can get six months of unlimited digital access, just 99 cents. What a deal.
1: That's unbelievable.
0: Subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast. So you always know what's really going on. Okay. We have so many more questions to get to. Patricia, I'm going to put you on the spot again. I'm going to go with a question from John Herman who says that 538, the data analysis site, identifies Georgia as one of the most inelastic states in the country. Who do you think actually makes up this tiny batch of voters? And I'm paraphrasing here because it's long. Um, Oh, and when are you going to give Herman's tote board an on-air plug? Well... We just oh, gave Germans. John
1: Herman. Thank you. Well, there's your first on-air plug, <laughs> and stay tuned because you never know there could be more. By inelastic, do we mean um, we're not having swingy elections? Would it, I wonder how we're defining inelastic. I would from imagine
0: that that the voting blocks in Georgia are pretty concrete. Although we have seen in the last few elections, in particular, this very small but influential block of swing voters, independents, moderates, disaffected Republicans, who have decided elections in 2021 and 2022.
1: Yes, and I feel like... um the elasticity of that small group has a lot to do with Donald Trump. I think that there are some Republicans in that swingy group of uh, moderates who really have reached the end of their rope with Donald Trump. They're looking for other candidates, and they were more than happy to support Governor Brian Kemp. Um, We even have some Democrats in that swingy section who were also happy to support Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger because of their interactions and their resistance to Donald Trump. So a lot of this feels very personality-driven and not even party-driven, which is one of my favorite parts about that inelasticity, because it's so hard to predict. Who could have ever predicted the outcome of those 2022 primaries? We knew that Kemp and Raffensperger looked strong. We did not know they were 50 points strong against very real competitors in David Perdue and Jody Heiss. So that just was a huge shock. I also that was another think, shock from yes, the earlier question, Absolutely. Right? So I also think that that swinging group gets a lot more power in the state of Georgia because of our Uh, election laws that let um, unaffiliated voters or really let anybody we have our open primary system anybody can vote in either primary so democrats can cross over and vote for republicans in their primary and vice versa independents can do whatever they want anybody can vote in any primary they want and that lets people have their voices heard in those primaries not to be spoilers necessarily necessarily but we talked to a lot of democrats who did not believe democrats would win in November of 2022 so they wanted to make their voices heard and that GOP primary and go ahead and pick Governor Kemp and pick Brad Raffensperger because they knew they, at the very least, if it was going to be a Republican, they wanted those Republicans in charge. And that's given those voters a lot more of a voice in the direction of this state than other states would have had with closed primaries.
0: Yeah, there's definitely evidence of significant crossover voting in that primary. Not enough to swing the outcome of a race, especially when you're talking about 50 yes. percent victories from Governor Kemp and big big victories from Raffensburger and other Republicans. Um, Republican incumbents but at the same time there is that element um, to me you know look every every race is sort of like a tightrope walk because um, in an open primary and in a general election candidates have to appeal to their base while also not alienating the, the core and the key in the general election is going to be this core of voters I and mean, we, we like to call them in the last election the Kemp Warnock voters those hundreds of thousands of voters who backed both the Republican governor And probably voted down the line in other statewide races Republican and then also voted or either couldn't vote for Herschel Walker or backed Senator Raphael Warnock, the Democratic incumbent. And so that block of voters could be key in 2024. And the challenge for all these Republican and Democratic – for Joe Biden and for whoever emerges on the Republican field is appealing to these voters without alienating your base at the same time. And. That's that's kind of the gist of the election right there. Good
1: luck with that, everybody. It's the same problem, same challenge for Republicans. And um, again, here in the state, you have to sort of be mindful of that, even in your own primary. Um, but then be absolutely mindful of that in the general election. I do also think um, the way we've seen uh, Senator John Ossoff and Senator Raphael Warnock govern as senators really reflects the type of voters who put them in there and Georgians don't register by party affiliation. So we don't have anything other than polling to tell us how many Democrats and how many Republicans and how many independents we think there are. But nationally, um, there are more independent voters than either Democrats or Republicans as people's affection for these two parties, continues to fall and they are starting to look more at issues, even single issues, um, more so than the party affiliation themselves. Senator
0: Warnock won in part with a campaign strategy that talked more about working with Tommy Tuberville and Ted Cruz, arch conservatives than working with President Joe Biden. And you're already seeing John Ossoff start, you know, he's been doing it since his election, but he's amplifying a similar strategy about working with Chuck Grassley and other Republicans uh, to get things done in Washington, in his view. Okay, our next question comes from Barbara Bryant. She would like to know more about the seeming division among Republican leaders in Georgia. Governor Kemp not attending the Georgia GOP convention in a few weeks, and the rift between the state party and its activists and um, establishment leaders,
1: yeah, Greg. Why don't you take that first? Because you've done a lot of reporting on this. Yeah, well,
0: what you're seeing from the governor right now is an effort to create essentially a parallel structure to the Georgia Republican Party using something. It's I know it's a little arcane and nerdy, but something called the Leadership <laughs> Committee. It's a it's a law that he signed a few years ago that basically allows certain candidates for higher office to raise unlimited cash and use it to coordinate with their uh, their campaigns. And their offices. And so Governor Kemp can use this even after his reelection victory um, to promote candidates, to promote pr- his priorities, uh, to promote his vision, to air TV ads, to hire staff, to do all sorts of things. And last year we saw a def- definite rift. We saw the Georgia Republican Party chairman David Schaefer openly back a challenger to Brad Raffensperger, Jody Heiss. We also saw a number of G- Georgia GOP leaders show up at Donald Trump rallies where Donald Trump was bashing uh, not just Governor Kemp and Raffensburg, but also Attorney General Chris Carr and Insurance Commissioner John King. So there is the serious rift, and fresh off uh, sweeping victories, there is little appetite for the governor and the AG and the insurance commissioner and the secretary of state and other leading Republicans to want anything to do with the state Republican party. It might be a temporary rift. It might be something that goes on. Either way, though, the governor now has these tools at his disposal uh, to, uh, to basically sideline the Georgia Republican Party and use his own leadership committee to do a lot of what he would might, might once have relied on the Georgia Republican Party to do.
1: Yes, so because there have been some changes in laws that are really important with what is going on with the Georgia GOP right now. The Citizens United decision by the Supreme Court changed the rules on how much money people could give to dark money organizations. No, unlimited doesn't have to be disclosed. Um, that basically lets people set up kind of their own shadow parties if they really feel like it. And so look at somebody like Kelly Loeffler has set up something called Greater Georgia that's meant to drive turnout, um, register voters. She has essentially created a separate party committee because she has so much money, but she does polling. She does turnout. She does um, grassroots operations. She goes around the state. Now she's gone in to start with a separate organization supporting Republicans for state Senate. So she has created this kind of shadow party doing the work that the Georgia GOP would typically do. And we heard complaints from Loeffler, from Governor Kemp, that the Georgia GOP, in their opinion, kind of wasn't getting the job done. They're like, well, then I'm going to do it myself. Because of those leadership committees now, that was a Georgia law, not a federal law. um, That has let Kemp raise the money, spend the money however he wants, and that's acting as kind of a shadow party as well. But here's my question for you, Greg. The the tables. Yes, hello. (laughs) The Republican General Assembly is talking about a rules change to Georgia GOP rules and bylaws that might give the GOP some kind of veto power over who can run in the GOP primary. And that might give the Georgia GOP more leverage Good over way. these candidates than they've had in the, in recent years. Yeah, and
0: Patricia's mentioning this faction within the Republican Party called the Georgia Republican Assembly, the GRA. And, you know, they've been around for a while and they've actually been promoting this rules change for a while but it's only been recently where they've picked up some momentum. They've won some key party elections at the county level, at the district level, and now they're going for some state level wins. And this rules change probably won't pass this year. I've talked to a number of Republican insiders who say that it just, it doesn't have the votes. It might not pass. It might not even get put on the, 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 the schedule to vote, but it's going to be a new perennial issue. Um, and there are a number of of conser- very ultra-conservative activists, I guess you could say, uh, one of them was quoted saying um, that he wants to purge the party of traitors, um, that <laughs> okay. he wants to purge the party of of, of faux-conservatives, of rhinos, of, of phony Republicans who are looked at as moderates or too willing to, to collaborate with Democrats or what have you. Uh, it gets into a very dicey territory because— One man's traitor is another man's hero, I guess, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, Uh, the rhinos are the ones who are winning. And we say rhino. I mean, Governor Kemp is conservative, as is Brad Raffensperger, but those are the rhinos that they're talking about.
0: To these movements, to these these fringe groups. Um, Okay, let's throw to Shane for a quick question from the AJC Live audience. Let's do it. Uh, We have a uh, question here from
2: David, who is uh, in our AJC Live audience. Hi, David. David writes, I keep reading that Georgia will have a budget crunch in 2023 and either the legislature or the governor did not fund a number of statewide initiatives. If the state had not issued income and property tax rebates, could these programs have been funded? Wouldn't it be fiscally responsible to have a surplus in fat years to be able to make up for the difference in lean years?
1: David... That's a great question. You may have been reading the AJC recently because this has been the news over the last um, several days. Because the governor did indeed issue um, some line item vetoes, a few line item vetoes, but much more in spending changes called. Are they redirects? Disregard. Disregards. Excuse it's me. This, these are not. Term. I don't think these are real words, but they call it a disregard. Um, t- going into the budget line by line and saying to his agencies, disregard this change in spending disregard this increase in spending that the legislature has sent over um the unusual twist with that is those disregards don't cut the budget so you're not saving money you are simply telling the agencies don't spend it the way that the general assembly has told you to spend it now you go into a lot of that kind of that spending these were really pet projects of lawmakers especially on the house side who have been really taken off guard surprised and very upset that projects like um six million dollars in funding to have free breakfast and lunch for public school kids. Um, That has been uh, redirected by the disregarded, excuse me, by the governor. Um, A lot of their uh, things that you wouldn't think would typically get the governor's ire, mental health funding um, to have more beds for inpatient mental health treatment, Um, really, really important spending to them. And it doesn't necessarily save money. So the question is, is this about something else? is this about politics? Is it about filling in a budget gap elsewhere in the budget, which is what we've started to hear from the governor's office that maybe to backfill Medicaid funds that didn't come in as expected. So that's sort of the story now. There's a lot more digging to do. But will there be a budget crunch? I would say yes. The governor um, had $2 billion in tax cuts this year, in this year's budget, about a million dollars in property tax relief one time, and about uh, Nine hundred million dollars in income tax rebates. So, out of six billion dollars surplus in the state, two billion went out the door to tax cuts, which Republicans say that's exactly where it should go during a budget crunch. But you know, we're this will be a fight. For some time, and
0: David, you know there are dozens of disregards. This was, to me, it was an executive sort of show of strength over yeah. a- after a pretty, you know, not a not an overly testy legislative session, but a pretty it got kind of combative near the end in terms of fighting between the legislative branch and the and the governor's office. Um, but what we'll see, and as is is Patricia mentioned, is if you ask the governor's uh, camp about these budget these uh, these tax cuts, they saw the election as a referendum on their plan. You know, Stacey Abrams uh, talked about using the $6.6 billion plus surplus on what she called um, generational change, bigger pay raises for teachers and public employees, expanding Medicaid, uh, uh, legalizing gambling, uh, casinos and sports betting in order to to, uh, boost needs-based scholarships. Governor Kemp had a very different model, one that was premised on these tax cuts, these income tax cuts, property tax breaks, um, and other tax rebates to Georgians. And he won, and he is now he is now going out and carrying out uh, that campaign promise. And so it's going to lead to a lot of questions, especially going forward, if we do end up in a budget crunch. Um, the dark clouds are already mm-hmm. brewing. We saw a decline in, in the monthly revenue year over year in the latest tax report, um, and you know there is a question about whether or not there could even be need need another special session in order to revisit some of these budget cuts. Uh, from what I've heard, state officials are confident there won't have to be. They won't have to go come back before January, um, but certainly some ominous clouds are brewing. Shaney V, do we have another question or do you want me to go to my list? Oh, why don't you go to your list? Okay, because
2: we have a really good one.
1: <laughs> Shane's glasses are not working as yeah. well as hoped. Uh, they, they
2: turned off, I'm sorry. They're, they're
0: non functional We have a really good one from Randy Hornstein, oh. who says, I know that there's little possibility of Governor Kemp or the state legislature rolling back abortion restrictions But what about guns? Is there any possibility that the state will take any action on firearms? And Joshua, we got a variation of that question from about 20 people. Yeah. Um, You want to take that first?
1: Uh, Sure. I would say the chances of Georgia rolling back uh, gun uh, or creating new gun restrictions with the current governor and the current General Assembly is about zero, maybe 1%. The only even hint I've heard of a possibility would be maybe they would go in and revisit um, the language that has started to really make festivals concern. We saw a number of public festivals, Over the past year, canceled because of possible concerns about guns being allowed on public property, like Piedmont Park. Now, those festivals are back now. Music Midtown just announced that. Music Midtown just announced that they're coming back. That was one of the festivals that was canceled, and it was starting to create a lot of angst in the Capitol because it was just a monthly reminder of, uh oh, now we have gun laws that festivals and uh, performers don't want to be a part of, and it was costing those venues money. Because they're back on, I don't know that that's gonna change what needs to change probably are are the coalitions of the people that these lawmakers are hearing from right now it is um they know exactly how democrats feel they know exactly how republicans their base republicans feel but they're going to need a lot of pressure from very different people i would say it's republican voters who need to start reaching out to republican lawmakers and the governor to change the dynamic here because we've had that um, recent mass shooting in Midtown, I've heard from a number of Republicans, just your average voters, moms, people, women very worried about their kids in schools who are starting to apply that kind of pressure. But something in the dynamic needs to change drastically because the incentives for Republicans to change these laws do not exist right now.
0: I agree there's very little chance of, of a Republican embrace of, of new gun restrictions or what what supporters call common sense. Um, gun control measures. This is a governor, of course, who ran on a very pro-gun platform beyond the Jake ad, beyond that famous ad. Uh, This is a governor who in the heat of a a primary battle um, went to a gun store where his daughter bought her first handgun and signed permitless carry, which was one of the biggest expansions uh, of gun rights in Georgia in the last, in the modern era, in the last uh, decades. Um, So that's the sort of um, underlying fact as it is. Uh, at the same time Democrats have changed their strategy you know not so long ago Democrats were calling for bands of wholesale bans of certain types of weapons and ammunition and raising uh, minimum age limits to buy to buy guns and they realized that as as much as that uh energizes their supporters that was never going to fly so now what we hear from Democrats and what we heard from the, the press conference that you covered just a few days ago in the Georgia State Capitol where dozens of Democratic lawmakers gathered is those people Bipartisan consensus efforts that polls show are widely popular, uh, uh, more mandatory background checks, more safe storage standards uh, for people who have guns with kids in their homes, um, and red flag laws, which lets a court determine if someone is danger to himself or others that a court can temporarily take away uh, that person's firearms. So these are these are these are issues that a number of Republicans could privately say they support, but they're also faced with the dynamic that, of backing any of these measures. It is an all or nothing game for these gun rights groups where they say, if you support any of these measures, you're trying to take guns away. And that's the reality they're dealing with on their side of the, uh, of the aisle with Republican primaries. Um, and so it will take probably some sort of bridging of that gap and Republican um, uh you know, unity on an issue like that in order to get any effective change done.
1: Yeah, I would say there's also a huge gap between how base Republicans and base Democrats view this issue. Um, The Democrats say the way to address gun violence is fewer guns on the street. There you go. Republicans, especially very conservative Republicans, say the answer is more guns, more people with weapons to defend themselves. Um, That that there needs to be a bridge to change that. Um, and when you talk about um, the kind of the threats to Republicans, there was a Georgia gun lobbyist during a hearing on Michelle Al Bill, Michelle's Michelle Al's bill about storing guns in homes with children. The lobbyist said to the members of the committee, um, "We don't want this bill. Anybody who betrays us on this bill, we will remember, including everybody sitting on this committee." And so they are there very clear in their message to Republicans. And every Republican who hears that has to think they're going to run a primary against me. They're going to spend money against me and they may do more than that.
0: And just a quick point about that. There was about 17 democratic back gun control measures, uh, this year in the General Assembly, and that was the only one to even reach a hearing.
1: Yes. And although it was made clear, there will be no vote on this bill. There will bill. be no vote. Yeah. Shannon B., I think we've got a question from you.
2: We have a question from the AJC Live audience.
1: Yes. Oh, great. This one
2: from Richard. He asks, 2024 is an election year. And in my experience, politicians seek to avoid controversial issues, gun control measures, reversing strict
0: abortion limitations, et cetera. Your thoughts? Well, <laughs> that's a very good question. Well, you know, Oftentimes in election years, we actually see the opposite. We see efforts uh, to energize the base. From re- ruling Republicans, we might see some more gun expansions, abortion restrictions. I'm not saying that will happen this year. I'm just saying in, in, in past years. In uh, 2022, we saw that, right? Um, we saw a gun expansion that Governor Kemp signed into law. We saw new uh, education measures that conservatives loved and liberals did not like at all. Um, usually it's the off year, 2023, where we might see more Um, you know, more bipartisan-driven legislation, infrastructure measures or mental health bills or things like that. We don't know what 2024 has in store, but we do know that there's very few truly competitive races on the ballot beyond the presidential race. There's no statewide race. There's no U.S. Senate race unless something unforeseen happens. Um, There's no uh, constitutional race for any of the statewide constitutional offices. And because of the way that uh, the congressional districts were redrawn, they're just not competitive. And so um, there'll be some competitive legislative races, but really all eyes will be on the top of the ticket and there will be a focus from both parties about how to energize their bases. And so you'll see some proposals from Democrats that won't go anywhere but are meant to send a signal to their supporters that this is what they're fighting for.
1: Yeah, and those races are not going to be competitive in November but they could very well be competitive in those primary races. And so that's why you actually do tend to see more hardline legislation from Democrats and Republicans to be able to show to their primary voters and to be able to even scare away primary opponents to say, Hey, I introduced a full abortion ban. What are you talking about? You couldn't get more conservative than I am. No one's going to primary me now. And so they will even have those votes, push those votes to the floor so that they can vote on that. Now, that's when it comes up to the leadership of the state house and state senate to say, whoa, we have members in swing districts who are going to have a primary and a general election to deal with. We don't want them taking those votes right now. So um, the election years can tend to be a lot of fodder for folly, I would say.
0: And a quick note about that. This year, in the absence of of Republican movement on abortion, on further abortion limits, or on expanding guns or other culture war issues, what we did see was we saw transgender policies go in the line, go into the spotlight. And that was described to me by one Republican lawmaker as sort of the, the release valve for all that conservative culture war energy went there because there wasn't uh, a new, big, fresh debate over limiting abortion. Well, that is all the time we have for today's episode, very special episode of the Georgia podcast. It went by really fast and we really had a blast doing it. We need to do this more, Shaney B. I know know how much fun it was for you too. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can count on new episodes to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever big news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC.